Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Baseball, a look at healthcare politics and policy in Washington, part of Paul Render's Practical Solutions podcast series. I'm John Williams, managing partner of Paul Render's Washington, D.C. office, as always. I'm joined by my colleague and D.C. cohort, partner in crime, whatever you want to call him, Andrew Coates. Andrew, how are you? Good. Happy New Congress. Happy New Congress. Happy New Year. Um, it's First new- recess week of the year. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, it is a uh, it is a brand brand new day, if you will, on Capitol Hill um, with a whole lot of new new things to look forward to. Um, this is our first podcast of the new year and and of the 118th Congress, which is already off to a very interesting uh, start. If you're watching the news at all, um, then you know the speaker's election was quite the high drama. I thought that uh, C-SPAN's coverage was absolutely amazing for all of you who listening to this that are political geeks like Andrew and I, um, and actually spent the time watching C-SPAN instead of the national news shows. It was fascinating because normally the party that's in control of the House controls the C-SPAN feed and controls the C-SPAN cameras, but because of a technicality, neither party was actually in control of the house for that period. The, the clerk of the house was in control. And so C-SPAN got to, to control their own cameras. And because of that, I think America got a, a, a really amazing view of, of how the house floor works. And, and I, for one, wish they would do an awful lot more of that. But uh, I think for obvious reasons and optics, uh, they, they don't. And, and I know Republicans are already in control of, the, of those cameras again. I argue, John, that more people watched C-SPAN and that drama over the speaker vote than probably any other House proceeding short of maybe an impeachment vote. Exactly. I was going to say, probably not since the last Trump impeachment um, has anybody watched that much C-SPAN. Yeah, no question. No question. Well, for this episode, I think we're going to look at um, the political power dynamics of the 118th Congress and, and then talk a little bit about what you might expect on the healthcare front. Uh, Andrew's going to walk you through the new power dynamics in the Senate, which aren't really that new, I guess. Uh, talk a little bit about the, the, the health care committees of jurisdiction over there, and then I'm going to do the same thing over in the House. Uh, with, uh, uh, with the House Republican majority, the new House Republican majority, majority and, and what we might be able to expect from them since they are in the majority. Um, Andrew, you ready? Do it. Take it away, my man. All right, yeah, so let's talk about the Senate and what has changed and what hasn't. Uh, Really, there's not a lot of drama compared to what's going on in the House. Um, The Senate is still going to be the Senate. They were in, they're swearing in new members and basically are out now. Um, But you're still going to need 60 votes um, unless there's, you know, a reconciliation vote and there's not going to be in this Congress. What we do see that's different is that a lot of the Republican deal makers who had big roles on sort of the A committees, um, as far as healthcare goes, are now gone. Um, Senator Blunt, key appropriator, labor HHS committee, um, ranking member, he's gone, he retired. Senator Burr, uh, ranking member on the health committee from North Carolina, retired. Senator Portman, key member on Senate Finance from Ohio, retired. Senator Toomey, another finance member, 
Pennsylvania retired. These are all members that uh, McConnell kind of leaned on and, and they did a lot of the deal making and worked closely with Democrats. They're gone now. And because of that, you, you have a much different kind of Republican Senate caucus than you did last Congress. And we've already seen McConnell face a leadership election challenge from Senator Rick Scott in Florida. It's the first time there's really been a group that's publicly opposed uh, to McConnell, who has, for the bulk of his time in leadership, really enjoyed uh, unified support from within the caucus. So there's going to be, he's going to face a little bit of headwinds um, this year from within, and that will be something new to watch. Now, Senate is out this week. Um, they come back the week of January 23rd. You're going to see the committee appointments and the committees get filled out. Um, so new members get appointed to committees. And then the Senate will be off and running from there. The two big sort of Senate A committees that we keep an eye on, um, one is the Health Committee, the other is the Senate Finance Committee. The Health Committee is where we see um, the big change. You're going to have um, you know, gone our Senator Burr, which I've mentioned, he retired. Senator Murray um, is no longer going to be uh, chairwoman. You're going to have uh, Bernie Sanders in charge of the Health Committee. And you're going to have Dr. Cassidy from the Republican side as ranking member. Yeah, you've got you've got Mr. Medicare for all on on the one side, and you've got uh, a a former physician uh, on the other. That will be uh, that will be interesting. Two members that they'll never shy away from healthcare issues. They're very <laughs> say what you will. Um, both take a very much interest in healthcare. Diametrically opposed sides. Um, so not as much in last Congress, but in recent years, the Health Committee has always worked well together. And when you you meet with their committee staff, you usually joined by Republican and Democrat staffers would sit in on that meeting. We'll see if they kind of go back to this format under Sanders. I, I don't know. Uh, this is such an unknown to so many people of how this will play out that it's gonna be interesting to see how well these two work together and how well the committee works together. Yeah, that's, that's that's really a, a good point. You know, Cassidy is, I don't know, the, the gang of what whatever number it is now, right? But you've got this, you do have this group of Republicans that have worked across the aisle um, to pass legislation uh, to get to the 60 votes. And Cassidy has traditionally been one of those. You know, Todd Young from Indiana has been part of that from time to time. Uh, Mitt Romney from Utah has been part of that. Um, you've had this group that has been willing to work across the aisle to get stuff done, and Cassidy's been a part of that. Now, how far he's going to go to what Bernie Sanders' traditional views of healthcare are, who really knows? You know, Cassidy's got a, a real soft spot on behavioral health, which could be an area, right, where, where they work together. Um, although there was a lot of money for behavioral health in the omnibus that passed last month, I do think, you know, it's going to be fascinating to watch, but it's, I think it's possible that there could be some, some some areas where they actually work together. But yeah, I think to your point as well, seeing how the staff works together is going to be fascinating too, and that's something that you know people like us will keep an eye out for. And then the other big A committee in the Senate is the Senate Finance Committee, and here you have basically the same roster intact. Um, Senator Wyden from from Oregon as chairman, and and Crapo from Idaho as ranking member. 
again, you know, if you only listened or watched MSNBC or Fox News, you'd probably be surprised to learn that the Finance Committee, like most committees in the Senate, attempts to work in a bipartisan matter. And, you know, if we're up there with a client or you have a proposed bill that client wants to have introduced, you're going to need to have buy-in from both Republicans and Democrats on that committee um, to make it really a serious legislative effort. Um, so again, I think we're going to see that that, that bipartisan ship on the Senate Finance Committee. Yeah, you know, the, I, I don't, to interrupt you, I'm sorry, but the, the fascinating development, and, and maybe you're going to get to this, and I apologize if you were, but um, is this retirement of Debbie Stabenow from Michigan? Mm -hmm. um, you know, you talk about somebody that's worked across the aisle over the years on healthcare issues, especially, and not only that, but somebody that was in line to be the next chairperson of that committee. Um, and then just up and decided not to to run for re-election in 24. So um, some changing dynamics there too. One of the interesting kind of nuggets that some Senate Democrats now have is subpoena power. Um, last year with a 50-50 split, they did not have the subpoena power that Senate normally enjoys. Um, so I would expect a number of interestingly, you know, industry leaders being hauled up before the Senate. And then in the House, you're gonna see this back and forth because the House um, can kind of respond in kind. So if you see the House do something on, you know, document leak from President Biden, you see the Senate respond with something regarding Trump or the Senate does something on, you know, the climate change, why are you killing the environment? You may see the House respond with something on tech and, you know, why is the company so woke? So you're gonna see this kind of ping pong match going back and forth. Um, but I think it puts a lot of the Fortune 500 CEOs and big industry leaders and trade associations um, on their toes and be ready to be hauled oh. up before Capitol Hill at moment's notice. Yeah, and I, I think you're absolutely right. I think you know what we've always seen in the past is that when you have divided government like that, right? And you've got one party controlling one body, one party controlling the other one, the chances of getting legislation passed is really remote. And so what does everybody spend their time doing? They spend their time on oversight, right? And to your points, you know, having subpoena power to do oversight. And so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think you're gonna see a ton of oversight uh, from both parties, but coming from different angles, depending on whether or not it's the Senate you're talking about or the House. But at the end of the day, Senate is still gonna be fairly status quo from what we saw over the past two years. Where the big change and where I think a lot of the interest has been, at least in this opening couple of weeks, has been the House. Yeah, you think you want to talk about kind of the, the power struggle on the, you know, what the uh, uh, speaker vote and all the implications of that mean for this Congress? Yeah, I mean, as I said, it, it was high drama for for political geeks uh, like us. And, you know, in case you you weren't watching the speaker's vote um, because you had a lot better things to do. It took 15 votes or 15 ballots for Kevin McCarthy to finally win. Um, the 14th ballot was especially intense because everybody went into that vote believing that Kevin had finally gotten enough votes to get across the finish line and win the speakership. Um, but it turns out that he didn't because a handful of Republicans changed their minds at the very last minute. Like literally as the vote was starting, they, they changed their minds. And there was this really intense 25 minute standoff on the House floor that was caught on television uh, not just C-SPAN, but you know, every CNN, Fox, everybody was, was showing it. Um, 
and and they they eventually proceeded to a fifteenth ballot <clears throat> where, where Kevin again you know finally secured enough votes to become uh, the speaker. You know, there's there's really two schools of thought regarding how all this played out and what it means. I, I tend to agree with those who say that that this episode is is really a display of how the process should work. Um, although it was truly a up close view of, of how the sausage gets gets made in Washington, uh, you know the, the legislative process, which includes picking leadership, can be very very messy. Uh, and in this case, it was on display uh, for the whole world to see. Um, but there, there are many Republicans that, that really wanted to move away from this top-down leadership-driven approach to legislating that has become the norm for both parties over the last 20 to 30 years. And, and, and this was their, their opportunity to try to do that. Uh, the other school of thought, which I also agree with, is that this episode is merely an example of the dysfunction that we're all in store for um, on the Republican side uh, this year. Uh, when you look at the vote itself, I, there, were, there was really two factions at work here. Um, first, you had this, this Tip Roy, Byron Donalds camp, if you will, of about 20 Republicans who wanted, wanted rules changes and greater representation on, of conservatives on committees. Uh, they basically wanted to go back to the schoolhouse rock, I'm just a bill method of doing things where you know bills went through committee and they get marked up and they go to the floor and they can be amended on the floor. And, and all of that. So, you know, those are legitimate political and policy concerns. And I think that that is a the right arena in which to have that debate, as messy as it was and as public as it was. The other faction was just four Republicans, really, led by Matt Gates of Florida. And I'm not really sure what their end game was, other than to draw attention to themselves in order to raise money off of social media, um, which, you know, I know some of them were doing the entire time this process was going on. What they're what their legitimate policy concerns were, I'm not really sure to this point. But but in the end, Kevin got the votes he needed to become speaker. You know, what does that mean for the future? Look, Republicans have a very small, very small majority here. And that means that the smallest group of Republicans can bring everything to a, a complete standstill. So it's going to be really hard for Republicans to pass any meaningful legislation through the Congress. You know, they got the votes to get it through the House, but getting 60 votes in the Senate, which means getting Democrats to go along, is going to be incredibly difficult, if not impossible. So, you know, despite their promises to stop the IRS from, you know, hiring these 87,000 new employees and, and their promises to use, you know, the power of the purse to lower government spending, there's no bill to do those kinds of things that can get 60 votes in the Senate, much less get, get Biden to sign it. So, you know, Republicans seem to be sticking with this time tester tradition that they have of, of, of over-promising and under-delivering. And look, both sides do it. I'm not just picking on Republicans here, but just think of the ACA-related, uh, the ACA repeal debacle, if you want to see what I'm, what I'm talking about. And if you, if you really want to see what we're in for, I think, over the next two years, all you really have to do is think back to that period of 2010 to 2016, when, when, Obama was president and, and Boehner was speaker, John Boehner was speaker, and we just went from fiscal cliff to fiscal cliff, from continuing resolution to continuing resolution and government shutdown threats and whatnot. And, you know, I think hopefully, when I say this, like hopefully Republicans learn their lesson on government shutdowns, but I'm not really sure because you still have a significant number of Republicans in the House 
who weren't around the last time Republicans shut the government down. So they don't really understand what the political cost is for doing that. But hopefully McCarthy can keep everybody on board and they don't, you know, run the train off the rails. We knew that this was going to be a tough slate for McCarthy. We knew this would be a tough Congress. We knew, we talked about in our post-election recap, I think anyone who follows politics closely knew, uh, you know, he had a tough schedule ahead. I, I, you know, I, I think I started, but I think you're absolutely right. We knew that after the election, but before right. the election, right. right? all the predictions, ours included, was like, oh, Republicans are going to get like anywhere from, from 12 to 40 seats in the House. And it'll be like four or five. And so I think that was part of what McCarthy had to deal with, right, was that he went in to the midterm election thinking that he was going to he, he wasn't going to need Chip Roy. He wasn't going to need Byron Donalds or Matt Gates or Lauren Boebert. And that, you know, that cost. this was like the speaker vote was so dramatic and so many people watched it. Now it's not just the kind of inside baseball, shameless plug, folks that know this. But your Uber driver knows it's going to be tough for McCarthy. Your kid's basketball coach knows it's going to be tough for McCarthy. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows how tough it's going to be this year for McCarthy. And um, in a way that may help lower the expectations uh, for the Republicans and for leadership. Because let's wait, as you mentioned, when a new party takes over the House, there's always that gen- January, February period where it just the, the sky is the limit. And, you know, we're going to impose term limits. We're going to repeal the ACA. We're going to pass climate change. McCarthy's coming at this from the opposite end of the year. So any sort of movement he gets is going to be seen as a, as a positive and kind of unexpected. Right. I mean, I mean, so tough, right, to the point that nobody else wanted the job. I mean, for, for the people that were watching it, right, you, you, you kept see them nominating, Republicans nominating Jim Jordan to be speaker, even though he didn't want the job and he was back in McCarthy, right? You know, th- that's how hard it was to become speaker in line for the presidency of the United States that nobody else in the Republican party wanted the job and the Republican House Congress wanted the job other than Kevin McCarthy. So, yeah, I mean. And it's gonna be for the Democrats, can you ever remember a change in power in the House where the minority party comes in with more momentum than House Democrats right no, now. No. You know, usually there's the party that lost has this month of recrimination and you're reading these 10,000 word think pieces right. about who's to blame for losing the House. Uh, you know, but that really hasn't been the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, partly they have new leadership for the first time in a long time. Right, right. Kind of enjoying that honeymoon period. Well, and the enthusiasm that goes with it, right? I mean, they're, they're right. Just- they're excited about having this new young crop of, of leaders on the Democratic side. And they've got some good ones. I mean, Pete Aguilar has is, is, is got a great record. And, you know, Akeem Jeffries does too. I mean, they're they're qualified, qualified to do the job. But yeah, they they certainly, you know, you talk about over-promising and under-delivering. I mean, they 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 outperform their expectations, which you know always gives you always gives you momentum when you're going into a new job. But speaking of new jobs. You know, in the House, we're going to have new leadership of committees, and and in the in the House, there's there's two committees that have jurisdiction over healthcare, right? Ways and Means and Energy and Commerce. And if a person wants to be a chairman of a committee in the House, they literally have to run 
a campaign for it. And this is this is some serious inside baseball stuff. The steering committee inside the, the Republican caucus, um, and don't ask me how many people have served on it because I can't remember, they are really who determines becomes chairman of these committees. And so you have to run these campaigns you know, in front of the steering committee to win enough votes to become a, a chairman. And different people on the committee, which includes you know, Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise, they, they, they have a different number of votes. I think the last time I, I checked, it's like the speaker has like seven votes on steering committee. So the, you know, the greatest amount of influence. So these folks literally have to run these campaigns for these chairmanships. And, and that includes raising a significant amount of money for your colleagues. And in this case, you know, doing that through the, the National Republican Campaign Committee. So if you look at ways and means of the two healthcare committees, it was really the only one that had a race for its chairmanship. And that was between Vern Buchanan of Florida and Jason Smith of Missouri. And, and Vern has more seniority on that committee, a committee where seniority is, is fairly important on the Democratic side of things in the House, seniority is still the most important thing. It hasn't been the most important thing Republicans for Republicans since about 1994 when, when Newt Gingrich picked Bob Livingston over, over John Myers from Indiana for the House Appropriations Committee chairmanship. But it still plays some factor. And Vern, you know, we talk about money, Vern raised more money uh, for the NRCC than, than Jason did, although not by much. I think Vern raised like 4.1 million and Jason raised 3.8 or something like that. So he raised slightly less money, but but Jason is much closer personally to Kevin McCarthy, even though Vern and Kevin came into Congress in the same class together. I think ultimately it came down to the fact that that Jason is is viewed as more conservative than Vern. And, and more importantly for that, uh, making Jason chair of the Ways and Means Committee was another bargaining chip that Kevin could use in his negotiations with conservatives to win the vote for speaker. It, it, it was a bargaining chip. And he could say to them, okay, I know you like Jason better than you like Vern because he's more conservative. So I promise I'll make Jason chairman of Ways and Means instead of Vern if you vote for me. Um, you know, there's been reports that there was a very heated conversation between Vern and Kevin on the floor after that. Um, where Byrne told him that you, you know, you screwed me, which is not exactly the word he used, but so, uh, so high drama there. Um, Ways and Means does have a health subcommittee. Uh, and I think Byrne's consolation prize is that he gets the health subcommittee gavel. He was already the highest ranking Republican on that subcommittee. And so he'll, he'll now become the, the chairman of that subcommittee. There was, he made a lot of noise, you know, during the whole, process that if he didn't get the gavel for ways and means the full committee gavel that he was going to retire from Congress and now that looks like it's probably not going to happen. Um, so he's going to stay and serve in that role. On the Democratic side, Lloyd Doggett from Texas um, has been serving as the chairman of that subcommittee and he'll just assume the, the highest ranking uh, Democratic spot on that on, on that subcommittee. As we as we sit here today, we know that Republicans will have 25 seats on the full Ways and Means Committee and Democrats will have 18, which is fewer than they have now. That's the way the process works, whichever party controls the chamber gets more seats on committee than the other one does. Um, no word yet on which Democrats are gonna lose their seats on that committee, uh, but we knew though, we do know that there's gonna be about 10 new Republicans on that, on that committee because of, of, of other vacancies and whatnot. 
The other committee in the House that has jurisdiction over healthcare, uh, energy and commerce, nowhere near the type of changes that we're seeing at Ways and Means. In fact, barely any changes at all, quite frankly. Uh, at, the, at the full committee level, Kathy McMorris-Rogers is moving from the ranking Republicans spot to the chair. Frank Pallone of, of, of New Jersey is moving from the chair to the highest ranking Democrat spot on that full committee. Uh, at the health subcommittee level, Brett Guthrie's taken the gavel as chairman uh, and Anna Eshoo is moving from the from the chair to the highest ranking uh, Democrat on that committee. I think on ENC, that's a committee you could look at and say, you, know, you could see legislation moving out of that committee. You know, last year with, with Pallone and CMR, you saw that they moved a privacy bill, they moved the FDA user fee bills and worked in a, from what we could tell, bipartisan fashion. So I'd, I'd pinpoint that committee as one where I'd look to predict to see legislation getting moved. Yeah, absolutely. And and it will be interesting because, um, you know, 29 Republicans on that seat or on that committee, 23 Democrats, um, no word yet on who's going to get their seat and who's going to lose it on the Democratic side. But to your point, there are issues that have been bipartisan that come out of the committee. Um, and, and, and one of those issues uh, could be uh, the issue of, of healthcare monopolies and antitrust, and it kind of leads us into what we might expect as far as a healthcare agenda is concerned from House Republicans, and we're obviously focusing on House Republicans because Democrats control the Senate, and they, they really haven't put out necessarily a, a blueprint yet which House Republicans uh, did last year when they created this Healthy Future Task Force um, that outlined their, their priorities that they were given control of the chamber. And, and, and they divided issues into task force subcommittees that had titles like the Affordability Subcommittee and the Modernization Subcommittee, the Security Subcommittee or the Doctor-Patient Relationship Subcommittee. And, and many of the items on the agenda and each of these subcommittees put out white papers. And, and many of the items in those white papers, you know, read like a greatest hits compilation of, of uh, past Republican pro proposals like encouraging more portable health coverage or making health savings accounts more accessible or promoting association health plans. Um, however, there were some things in there that I won't say are necessarily new, especially for people who deal with healthcare at the state level and state houses. Um, but are fairly new in Washington uh, and could be pretty concerning, especially for hospitals and health systems. Uh, and these, these include things like reforming the inpatient only list or pursuing site neutral payment reform, uh, repealing the moratorium on physician owned hospitals. Those were all things that were included uh, as recommendations from, from the Healthy Futures Task Force. Uh, from what we have been told by leadership uh, staff. Republicans are considering using a collection of bills that were introduced in the last Congress as a sort of blueprint um, of sorts for their for their agenda, you know, a comprehensive health care package, if you will. And those those bills had titles like you know, the Addressing Anti-Competitive Contracting Clauses Act or the Consumer Choice of Care Act or the Transparency of Hospital Billing Act. So you can look at the titles of those and get an idea of, of where Republicans might be going. 
with their healthcare uh, agenda in the house. Another area that we think of is gonna be significant focus for the house, and this goes back to this point we were making earlier about oversight and subpoena power, is that House Republicans um, are gonna spend some time focused on exactly how it is that hospitals and other health healthcare entities use the monies that they receive from the provider relief fund. Um, many of you listening to this podcast probably read the Wall Street Journal article that ran last month, or I think it was even a series that they've been kind of running on this stuff. Uh, but at least one article from last month that claimed that billions of dollars in provider relief fund monies went to hospitals that didn't need it and or who used it to you know, either improve their bottom line or bonus up their executives or used it for some purpose that Congress did not intend provider relief fund monies to go to go for, to go to. Um, we're even getting word that that Representative James Comer of, of Kentucky, who's the incoming chairman of the House Oversight Committee, which I guess ironically for me is the, the committee that I worked on when I was on the Hill in the 90s, is going to uh, hold hearings that not only focus on how hospitals spent their provider relief fund dollars, but it's also going to hold hearings on how hospitals spend their 340B dollars, hold hearings on hospital not-for-profit status and how um, the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, conducts oversight of their consolidation uh, activities, the merger and acquisition activities in the healthcare space. And you know, it's that issue of competition and antitrust enforcement that I think might have the best chance of legislative success. And you talk about, right, into the things that, that Republicans and, and Democrats can work together on and you look at energy and commerce and it's got jurisdiction over this this issue um you know on the one hand you've got this this new strain of populism that's running through the republican party that isn't necessarily as pro-business as it has been in previous years and on the other hand you've got democrats in the senate like you know elizabeth warren or bernie sanders who might be willing to go along with republican legislation that cracks down on what they view as monopoly forces uh, in the healthcare marketplace. So, you know, trying to read these tea leaves here, I think antitrust and, and monopoly, or whether we're viewed as monopoly issues in healthcare, um, is areas that that we might see uh, folks on the Hill working together on. So, but it's early, and uh, we'll just have to see how it all I plays out, right? Stepping back from like a 10,000 foot view, um, you know, 117th Congress, you have a new presidential administration, you have big ideas, and you had big bills coming out, American Rescue Plan, Build Back Better. Right. These are tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars that were poured into these bills. Those days are gone. You know, 118th Congress is going to look a lot different. Um, it's going to be much more micro driven, uh, less coming from the White House, more coming out of the congressional office buildings and the policy staff on these committees. Um, and at the end of the day, the bills that are going to move, they're going to need to be broad bipartisan support and fairly non-controversial because right. of that. Right. Um, and then I, I think you have to pay for it too. I think that's going to come back into focus as well. Um, and we got away from that a little bit. And I think that's, that's kind of going to be back in vogue again. Yeah, you know, looking at in the healthcare space and looking down the road, um, 
there isn't a lot of must pass legislation that that needs to get done this year except for the the eight billion dollars in ACA related dish cuts, Medicaid dish cuts that are set to kick in on on, on October first, right at the end of the of, of this fiscal year. Those have been postponed over the years, and they're going to kick back in unless Congress does something about it. And from everything that we've heard on the Hill, they are going to do something about that. Probably postpone it again. I doubt they'll eliminate it. They'll probably postpone it again, but that provides a vehicle then to do other um, things in healthcare. And to your point, if they postpone it, they're going to have to figure out how to pay for it. And if they have to figure out how to pay for it, one of the areas that has always been talked about is the site for payment reform, right? For hospital outpatient departments that are receiving on-campus hospital rates instead of physician office rates. And, you know, those, those were banned. Then, then there was a exception for mid-builds, but, but there was a large group that were grandfathered in. And so, you know, in order to pay for these, this dish cut legislation, they could very well go back and, and, and use the monies from site neutral payment reform um, to help cover the cost of that legislation. So, you know, that's something that was on the Republican agenda to do. And I'm sure Democrats would go along with something like that in return for, you know, postponing these, these dish cuts. But I guess we'll just have to wait and see how it all plays out, right? It's hard to see a big healthcare vehicle kind of moving as a standalone. You have to think it's going to be attached to some sort of either raising the debt ceiling, supplemental funding, um, your appropriations type bill. Maybe I'm wrong, but it's just it, you kind of see it moving through those type of bigger vehicles. No, no, I agree with you. Well, however it all plays out, uh, we'll be here to tell you about it on Inside Baseball. So thank you for joining us on uh, for this edition. As always, if you would like more information about what Andrew and I do or how we provide federal advocacy services to our clients, please visit our website at hallrender.com or reach out to me at jwilliams at hallrender.com or Andrew at acoats at hallrender.com. And one last disclaimer, because we are lawyers, please remember that the views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants only and do not constitute legal advice. So long, everybody. Thanks for joining us.